0: Our text today is from Amos, Prophet Amos, chapter 8, and verses 1 and 2. There we read, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, And behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them, any more We continue in our series on covenanting and the solemn league and covenant and we consider another objection this Lord's day Some of those who object to the United States being bound by the solemn league and covenant have argued that the case might possibly be made that the 13 colonies, while officially united to Great Britain, were bound by the Solemn League and Covenant. But after declaring independence from Great Britain, and after formally settling its distinct and separate status as an independent nation from Great Britain at the Treaty of Paris, In 1783, the United States, as a distinct political entity from Great Britain, was no longer bound to the Solemn League and Covenant. However, if it can be shown from Scripture that divisions into distinct and separate nations does not loose the obligation of binding national covenants made unto God when there was only one nation and one king, then we shall have a biblical principle that can be used in regard to the United States. The biblical and historical example of the covenanted nation of Israel furnishes us with a particular case in point. Let us then consider the objection in light of this covenanted nation, the nation of Israel. And so, our main point today is this. No formal covenanted obligations, this is the objection that we're considering, no formal covenanted obligations continue upon a nation once it declares its independence from that political entity to which it was formerly united and with which it stood covenanted to God. Let us take our Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn to Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. The prophet Amos had been a, a common herdsman and fruit picker from the town of Tekoa in the southern kingdom of Judah, just south of Jerusalem, before being called. By God to be a prophet. He apparently had no formal theological training. He did not attend one of the schools of the prophets, from what we can see in the text. His father was of no notoriety, and yet the Lord sovereignly and graciously reached down, called, and gifted Amos to be his prophet. We notice in the previous chapter, in Amos chapter 7, verses 14 through 15, a little bit of background information to this effect. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock and the Lord said unto me Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Dear ones, just a a note of application at this point. Do not despise the day of small and insignificant beginnings in your lives. For the Lord delights to take those like Amos or those like David who had very common and ordinary jobs and to use them for very glorious and important tasks in His kingdom. However, the Lord calls you presently to be faithful. He calls you right where you are now to be faithful in the seemingly small things He has given you to do. Even if it feels like you're simply spinning your wheels, learn what God has for you to learn where He has you today. Because it is so often the case He is testing you in those areas to see if you will be faithful before entrusting to you more. Sometimes we undermine the present task that God has given us and thereby we miss the opportunity for building God's kingdom because our eye is always upon being in the spotlight, making a name for ourselves, doing something great and mighty. Do you see the importance, dear ones, in God's Kingdom of being a good and faithful father, a good and faithful husband, a good and faithful son, a good and faithful mother, a good and faithful wife, a good and faithful daughter. Do you see the value of learning to be submissive to God's will and applying yourself while you are single? While you are still a student in all of your household chores and in all of what may be called common and ordinary work, do you see the value in being diligent and faithful in all your tasks? You see, a good steward, a good steward, according to God's definition of a good steward, is above all else faithful. He's faithful. A good steward isn't simply one who has big things as it were to do. A good steward is one who is faithful in all that he does. Whether great or small. Are you being faithful with the time, the talents, and the treasures God has given you? Or are you rather Moaning and groaning about the petty work you've been given to do. How you deserve so much better. You see, a faithful steward learns to be faithful wherever he is until God, in his providence, takes him out of that situation. And again, it's not to say that you cannot use Uh, the circumstances with your employer to seek to have higher wages and things of that nature. But it is to say that if you can't be content where you are until God provides something better for you, then you're not being a good steward with what God has given to you. Because he doesn't have to give you even what you have. You don't deserve, I don't deserve what we presently have. Well Amos, back to our text, received the call from God to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel rather than to his own southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of Jeroboam the Second. was the second uh, Jeroboam the first was the king who was constituted king when Israel and Judah separated and divided. But In the line of Jehu, King Jehu was Jeroboam and Jeroboam II reigned in this prophecy of Amos occurred somewhere most likely between the years 780 to 750 B.C. The prophecy of Amos is for the most part directed against the covenant breaking kingdom of Israel And it is prophesying concerning the impending judgment that God is about to send upon the kingdom of Israel by way of the Assyrian forces who would bring about national destruction and bring them into captivity. Now, we'll come back to the vision that God gave to Amos here in chapter 8 in a few minutes but let us briefly review how the division between the kingdoms of Israel and Judah occurred so this is again a little bit of background information that I think will help us better to understand our text when we get to uh, expounding the first two verses of Amos chapter 8 God had entered into a national covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, meaning Israel consisting of the twelve tribes of Israel, after he had graciously delivered them from bondage in Egypt. About 500 years later, the Lord established Israel as a kingdom under the rule of Saul, his first king. The Lord then gave the united kingdom unto David, and to his household, who was a man after God's own heart. The kingdom of Israel remained united as one kingdom, the twelve tribes united as one kingdom, under that national covenant that they had made with God at Mount Sinai during the reigns of David and his son, Solomon. Upon the death of Solomon, Rehoboam, his son, proved to be both young and foolish. you recall from Second Chronicles chapter 10 that the people came to Shechem to make Rehoboam king. But before doing so, they asked him to relieve them of some of the exceeding great burdens that Solomon had placed upon their shoulders. Rehoboam first consulted with The elderly and wise counselors of his father who advised the king to extend a soft answer granting the request of the people, relieving the burdens that they were under. He then consulted with his young inexperienced peers who foolishly advised the king to threaten The people with even greater burdens than they had experienced under Solomon. Ten of the tribes united under Jeroboam the First, and sinfully, I believe, established a separate and distinct kingdom, the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin continued to follow the lineage of David. Thus there was at that time a declaration of independence by the ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel from the two tribes of the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel made Jeroboam their king and he established his own corrupt church in order to prevent his people from going to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah to worship God as God had commanded and authorized them to do. Now, we could give much, much more detail about the division that occurred at that time. However, I would rather summarize what occurred and give, I believe, the right reading, the scriptural, biblical reading on what occurred from the lips of Abijah, the son of Rehoboam, who reigned as king after Rehoboam, as he, Abijah, prepared to battle with Jeroboam. He speaks to Jeroboam, and I believe... Utters uh, very wise and scriptural words with regard to the sinful division that occurred on the part of the ten tribes in separating themselves from the two tribes, and you'll find this in Second Chronicles chapter thirteen, verses four through twelve. This speech of Abijah. And Abijah stood up upon Mount Zemaram, which is in Mount Ephraim, and said, Hear me, thou Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. And there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tender hearted and could not withstand them. And now ye think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David. And ye be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves, which Jeroboam made you for gods. Have ye not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and have made you priests after the manner of the nations of other lands? So that whosoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also set they in order upon the pure table, and the candlestick of gold with the lamps thereof to burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but ye have forsaken him. And behold, God himself is with us for our captain, And his priests with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you. O children of Israel, fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. Although the separation of Israel from Judah was ordained by the Lord, as all events are ordained by the Lord, whether sinful or religious, as we see in 2 Chronicles 10.15 and 2 Chronicles 11.4, there it says that these events were ordained of God. It would appear from the words of Abijah and by way of the subsequent victory which God granted to Abijah over Jeroboam, slaughtering hundreds of thousands of the Israelites, that God was giving testimony to the fact that Israel had separated unjustly from Judah. And that uh, this was not according to God's revealed will. In fact, in Hosea 8.4, in Hosea 8, four, we read concerning the kings of of the northern kingdom of Israel God says they have set up kings but not by me they have made princes and I knew it not the Lord did not approve by way of his revealed will even if he did ordain these events he did not approve of these by way of his revealed will Now, however wrong de jure this separation was according to God's law, the result of this separation was de facto, in reality, the declaration of of independence of a new kingdom, namely Israel, founded upon a different constitution from that of the kingdom of Judah. Thus, the kingdom of Israel was a kingdom as to being, but not a kingdom as to well-being because it had turned its back constitutionally upon the national covenant with God made with them and their forefathers at Mount Sinai. Again, in Hosea chapter 8, we note the judgment that is about to befall Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel and note what is said uh, by God in Hosea 8 verses 1 through 4 we read verse 4 just a moment ago but just notice the the first three verses likewise as the reason why this judgment was about to fall upon uh, the northern kingdom of Israel set the trumpet to thy mouth he shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord Because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law, Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good, the enemy shall pursue him. And then, verse 4, They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. In these verses this as I said is a judgment brought against it says the house of the Lord uh, That's that not being the temple but the house of Israel the house whole of Israel and this judgment will be brought upon them uh, very very soon for Hosea was a contemporary of Amos and this judgment that was prophesied would fall upon them in the very near future Having laid out this historical background and how Israel, according to Hosea 8, had transgressed God's covenant, they were a covenant-breaking nation and God was going to bring his judgment upon them. From our text, how did God view the newly formed kingdom of Israel in relation to the national covenant made with them at Mount Sinai. From our text, was the kingdom of Israel still bound to the national covenant made with God at Mount Sinai after they declared their independence from Judah? If a part of a nation or kingdom is bound by a solemn national covenant made with God, do they remain bound To God by national covenant, if they break away from the kingdom with which they were previously united when that national covenant was made? Well, let us turn back again to Amos chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. I think we already have seen the answer to these questions in just looking at Hosea chapter 8, where it says that. Israel, which was about to be judged, was a covenant-breaking nation. But, and so, after having declared their independence, God still is saying that His judgment is about to fall upon them because they are bound by the covenant which they are breaking. But I want to use this text also because I think it opens up for us a, 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 a whole new way uh, of looking at God's covenant. Amos is given a vision by God to convey to the northern kingdom of Israel. This vision pictures a basket of summer fruit. Now, the summer fruit was the fruit that had not been picked earlier in the season, in the late spring, for example, which if it was picked in the uh, the late spring, early summer it would last much longer. Remember, they didn't have refrigeration to keep fruit uh, preserved. And so fruit that's picked at the end of the season is fruit that's going to be very ripe and that's going to uh, spoil uh, much, much more quickly. And it has to be eaten very quickly because uh, of how ripened it has already become upon the tree even before it is picked. By this vision of a basket of summer fruit God was saying, according to God's own interpretation in Amos 8.2 God was saying quote, the end is come upon my people of Israel. In other words, the fruit of their sin has so ripened over the time of their history as a kingdom that they are about to be picked and consumed as a basket of summer fruit is ready to be quickly eaten. The Assyrians are at the door, as it were. (coughs) God says that he will not pass by Israel with his gracious correction. Any longer. They are about to be removed from the Promised Land as a kingdom and into Assyrian captivity, which occurred in 722 BC. How does this passage and many others like it relate to the objection to force? Remember the objection? Let me repeat the objection again that we started off with. No formal covenanted obligations continue upon a nation. Once it declares its independence from that political entity to which it was formerly united and with which it stood covenanted to God. Now, does this passage in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, indicate that there was yet a covenantal relationship between the northern kingdom of Israel and God? Even though Israel had separated itself, from and declared its independence from the southern kingdom of Judah? Absolutely. Certainly. And for two reasons from our text. First of all, God calls the northern kingdom of Israel my people of Israel. In Amos 8.2. The words my people are not used promiscuously, indiscriminately. They have a specific purpose in mind in saying my people. To the contrary, the words my people mean my covenanted people. That's the actual meaning. I mean, not the literal words that are used in the original language, but that's the actual sense of those words. My covenanted people. For the words my people mean that by way of covenant the kingdom of Israel is God's collective people and he is their God regardless of the backsliding and corruption corruption into which they had fallen. Now this is established in so many passages of scripture that we would be here all day if we were to consider all of them but let me mention two passages to make the point back in Exodus 19, verse 5. This was the time in which that national covenant at Mount Sinai was made with God. God declares them as a nation to be his people by way of covenant. And by way of good and necessary inference, he declares himself to be their God. If they are his people, then he must be their God. Thus Israel, that is, at that time, all twelve tribes became God's people as a nation at Mount Sinai by way of their national covenant. Now, just because ten of the twelve tribes separated from the two tribes and declared their independence from the two tribes and formed a distinct and separate kingdom with their own non-Davidic king and with their own non-Levitic king, Priesthood did not release the ten tribes from that national covenant to which they were bound when they were one kingdom composed of twelve tribes. And so the, at the very outset of this national covenant, my people indicates that Israel as to the twelve tribes are God's covenanted people. They are engaged in a national covenant with God. That's why God can say, they are my people. That's why they can say as a nation, he is our God. Then, the second scriptural example that I would mention to you, both of these we've looked at in previous sermons, but I think they're very helpful just to mention again. The second passage is found in Isaiah 19. Isaiah nineteen verses twenty four through twenty-five, there again there is an example of national covenanting, but in this particular case it's not Israel who engages in a national covenant, but rather it is Egypt who engages in a national covenant with God This is a preview, a prophecy of what will occur in the millennial period when the nations of the world will be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ and they will as nations covenant with God and they will also then call God their God and God will call them his people. Now look at verses Uh, Isaiah 19 verses 24 and 25 in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria even a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless saying blessed be Egypt my people and Israel the work of my hands and Israel mine inheritance Assyria the work of my hands and Israel mine inheritance. But again, focus on blessed be Egypt, my people. On what basis does God say to Egypt that they uh, utter this, blessed be Egypt, my people. Well, on the basis again of the national covenant into which they enter in verses 18 of that chapter, uh, in verses 18 and verse Uh, and uh, 21 uh, very clearly show that they have entered into a national covenant. Egypt has entered into a national covenant with God when it says in that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts one shall be called the city of destruction. So here it is Egypt shall swear to the Lord as a nation they shall swear unto the Lord. Likewise, in verse 21, And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation, yea, they shall bow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it. It doesn't say a remnant within, a small remnant within Egypt, but it speaks as the whole nation, the nation collectively, by way of its official representatives, political, uh, civil, uh, ecclesiastical, will, as a nation, covenant with God. And on the basis of that covenant, God calls them his people, my people, just like he calls Israel, my people on the basis of the national covenant in which they have entered as well. Thus from these two examples in Exodus nineteen five and Isaiah nineteen verses twenty four through twenty-five, we clearly see that when the Lord calls the northern kingdom of Israel my people, he is yet calling them a people bound to him by way of the national covenant made with them at Mount Sinai. Their declaration of independence from the two tribes, from Judah, did not remove them from their covenant that they had made with God. For although there were mutual duties that the tribes owed to one another as a result of that national covenant, it was to God that they had sworn that national covenant with regard to religious duties, with regard to moral duties, which they yet owed to God regardless of their civil circumstances. Whether they were in the land, whether they were out of the land, whether they were one kingdom, whether they were separate kingdoms, they owed God their obedience, faith, love, and obedience. And so likewise, it is true of the United States. While they were 13 colonies within the British Empire and a part of His Majesty's dominions in North America, they were as such bound by the national covenant made with God by England in 1643. The Declaration of Independence in 1776 may have formed a new nation de facto or in being. But such a separation from Great Britain did not release the United States from its solemn covenant made with God in 1643. It was before its declaration of independence, a covenanted dominion. And after its declaration of independence, it was a covenanted nation. If, dear ones, the United States is not now a covenanted nation bound by the Solemn League and Covenant, then I would submit to you, it must be consistently argued that it was never bound. It was never bound as British colonies or as dominions of the king under the Solemn League and Covenant. It was never bound by the solemn Covenant. If after its declaration, it, it is not bound. If after its declaration of independence, it is not bound, then I would argue it cannot be consistently argued that it was previously bound at any time. I do not believe, however, that it can be biblically argued that the British colonies were at one time bound to God by the solemn leading covenant, and were then not obligated after the Declaration of Independence. I believe that the scripture that we have been considering and the historical documents that we will, in weeks to come, be looking at will show, I believe, clearly. That the colonies were prior to the Declaration of their Independence, a co- covenanted colonies, covenanted dominions of His Majesty. That they were bound by the Solemn League and Covenant, and therefore, their simply changing uh, their name legally did not alter their obligations to God. It changed certainly their relationship to Great Britain but it did not change their relationship and their obligation and the duties they owed to God. And the second reason from our text in Amos 8.2 why we can conclude that the northern kingdom of Israel was yet a covenanted nation. The first was that God calls them my people, therefore they are covenanted after the declaration of independence. But the second reason from our text in Amos 8.2 is because of the impending judgment threatened upon them by God for their covenant breaking. When God says, The end has come upon my people of Israel, I will not again pass by them anymore. You see, this impending judgment will lead Israel into captivity, according to Amos 7.17. And the reason for being led into captivity, according to Hosea, Chapter 8, verses 1-4, through as we've already noted, was their covenant breaking. They're breaking their national covenant. Consider just uh, very, very briefly, and I'll just take a second to read these, but uh, just the four other passages of Scripture which likewise demonstrate, and there, there are so many, there are no doubt scores of passages that would use the phrase our God, my God, that would use the phrase "my people" throughout uh, the New Te- or the Old Testament, and even after um, uh, the Northern Kingdom of Israel had declared its independence from Judah. In Amos nine ten, for example, we read. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Again, this is the sinners of my people in the northern kingdom of Israel. We read earlier, likewise, in um, uh, chapter 7, where the Lord says in verse 15, And the Lord took me as or uh rather Amos says and the Lord took me as I followed the flock and the Lord said unto me go prophesy unto my people Israel likewise in Jeremiah 23:13 we read these words And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err. And in one last passage, uh, 1 Kings 16.2, we read... The following, and this is the word of the Lord, as it came through the prophet to Baasha, uh, one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. Forasmuch as I exalted thee out of the dust and made thee prince over my people Israel, again made my made him king over Israel by way, not of his revealed will, but by way of his uh, ordination, by way of his providential will. But he says, and made the prince over my people Israel. Dear friends, as we draw to the conclusion, I, I just have some application I want to make from the sermon today. I want to leave with you Uh, as I bring the sermon to a close the amazing covenant grace of our covenant God who does not forget his covenant even with covenant breakers for although the covenant breaking kingdom of Israel was severely judged by the Lord and being led into captivity by God into Assyrian captivity by God God, in his undeserving covenant love and mercy, will yet draw back unto himself the covenant breaking kingdom of Israel. In Deuteronomy 29, I won't read the passage, I'll just summarize. In Deuteronomy 29, verses 25 through 29, there it speaks of the curse that God would bring, the judgment that he would bring upon Israel. <laughs> if they depart from him if they break his covenant if they turn against him and in Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 3 it speaks of how God will restore them unto himself and as he restores them unto himself through faith in Jesus Christ how he will restore them uh, to inherit the land which he gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as well And so, we see that God, though He judges covenant-breaking, He's not through with nations that have entered into covenant with Him because He will see that those covenants, those national covenants that have been made with Him, will be realized to a much greater, more glorious realization, visible glory than we have seen up to this point. And this will be true even of the, the northern kingdom of Israel and of the southern kingdom of Judah. We see likewise this being the case in Zechariah chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, where Israel in the future, in the future millennial period uh, will cry out to God, My God, and, he was, and God himself will say, Thou art my people. And finally, in Romans chapter 11, Paul summarizes the whole argument of what appears to be the fall of Israel because they had turned their backs, the greater part of Israel, um, uh, basically all 12 tribes, uh, but uh, whether one takes the, the 10 tribes or the two tribes separately or takes the, uh, all of the 12 tribes uh, collectively, uh, that Paul says God's not finished with Israel because he will yet draw unto himself uh, those whom he has judged with a blindness, a judicial blindness whose eyes cannot at this point in time see their own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he will lift that blindness and draw Israel unto himself. The Lord through Paul, prophesies, will occur. And we see and that the, the re, Paul says in verse 28, as according to the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. Presently, uh, that is the case. Israel, take the, the, the kingdom, uh, the nation of Israel, they are enemies to God presently, according to the gospel. They hate Christ. They hate Uh, uh, biblical Christianity. Certainly they'll take the money of those who want to give to them for their own political purposes. They're not in the land now as a believing nation. They're in the land by uh, uh, as an unbelieving nation. But Israel, as Paul says, now is an enemy uh, as it relates to the gospel. But, he continues in verse 28, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake because God chose them and they covenanted and entered into a covenant relationship with Him. God will yet call them unto himself and they will receive uh, the covenanted blessings that God intends for them. And the reason why that is the case in verse twenty nine, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Abijah, King Abijah, spoke of a covenant of salt. That God made a covenant of salt. He didn't make a covenant of leaven. He made a covenant of salt. Leaven was not to be used in the in the sacrifices offered to God. It was Salt that was to be used. Because leaven corrupts, leaven uh, uh, is something that breaks down, ferments, but salt preserves. God is saying that if He makes a covenant of salt. He is saying it is permanent and is everlasting. And in all the sacrifices which Israel offered to the Lord, God was saying, I am making a covenant of salt. I am making with you in the covenant of grace a covenant of salt. Believe in me, trust in me through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who is foreshadowed in the sacrifices you are offering to me. Dear ones, does not such undeserved covenant love and mercy melt our own hardness apart? Where shall we go Germans, in all of the world, in all of history, in all of literature? Where shall we go to find such a story of love in all of the world? The most holy and high God who does not need us to complete himself, to uh, in any way make him more sufficient, who is all sufficient in himself. The most holy and high God loves us with an infinite And everlasting love. The everlasting God who knows the worst about us has chosen to set his love upon us and to redeem us by way of a covenant of salt, an unbreakable covenant in Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled all of the covenant of works which condemned us in Adam. And he imputed to us by faith alone his perfect obedience and suffering as our own. Now, dear ones, all things are yours, whether in heaven or whether in earth, for you are the heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Let not your sin, let not your covenant unfaithfulness therefore keep you away from Christ. Let his tender mercy drive you to him and not away from him. And let me just leave one application for you to do within your own families in the coming week or weeks. I think this will help enlarge your faith as you pray. Use an, use an English concordance and see how many times we are encouraged by God himself and his word to come to him for needs that we have on the basis of these words. My God or our God, which is to say, my covenant keeping God, or our covenant keeping God. Consider just two or three. In Philippians four nineteen, and my God shall supply all your needs according to to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My covenant keeping God will supply all your needs. It is a covenant of salt unbreakable that God will supply all your needs, dear ones. That ought to enlarge your faith and your love as you come to the Lord in prayer. In Daniel 6.22 Daniel cries out to The king, after he's in the in the lion's den, the king inquires as to Are you well, Daniel? And Daniel's reply is, My God, my covenant-keeping God has preserved me, as to body and soul. He has preserved me and kept me. If are you in distress, well, you can pray according to Psalm eighteen six. My God my covenant-keeping God when you are in distress. Do you want to pray for your children? David teaches us to pray in Psalm 22.10 that my God was my God, my covenant-keeping God, even from the womb. He was my God. Do you need healing in your body? According to Psalm 30, verse 2, you can cry out, My covenant keeping God with regard to even physical healing. And whether God heals you soon or late or whether He heals you now or completely heals your body at the final and glorious resurrection, you will be healed. And in the meantime, you will be given the grace whatever comes your way. Are you cast down? Are you discouraged? Are you depressed? Psalm 42, verses 6 and 11 calls you to pray to my God, my covenant-keeping God. Do you need to know God's will for your life in some area? Well, Psalm 143, verse 10, you are to cry out to your covenant-keeping God. Dear ones, all we need in this life and in heaven to come is bound up in the covenant of grace. Make it, therefore, your pattern for praying and calling upon God. Make that covenant live every day in your life. Make it practical every day in your life. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise Thee and thank Thee for Thy covenant faithfulness. For Lord, we deserve Thine everlasting condemnation for our covenant unfaithfulness. And we look to Thee, our God, our covenant-keeping God, to bring unto us, Lord, everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to Thee in this world and to give to us even that eternal inheritance in the world to come. Lord, we believe, help Thou our unbelief. For Thou art our God and Thou art the God of our children. And we place ourselves and our children and our grandchildren, Lord, in Thine almighty and faithful. Hands. Hear us, O Lord, today on the basis of that covenant of grace which Thou hast made with us and we have engaged ourselves in by faith in
1: Jesus Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.